0: Brewers Publications, a.k.a. BP, is the largest publisher of contemporary brewing literature for today's craft brewers, homebrewers, and beer enthusiasts. With over 50 titles to choose from, there is a beer book to fill most needs. Whether you're just discovering beer or are a seasoned professional, BP is the go-to choice for brewers looking to expand their knowledge and hone their craft. Check out the complete BP catalog at BrewersPublications.com. to the brew files from experimental brewing our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing including styles techniques and recipes ingredients and well whatever else we can think of more brew more flavor more stories less time and less ukulele at least for now (laughs) (laughs) i don't know man people have a sickness i know i have a fever and it needs more ukulele all right on this episode of The Brew Files, we are going to talk technique this week. That's right, it's another format, technique this time. And we figured, well, why not give you guys what you really want, which is more of Denny. <laughs> and we're going to let Denny talk about one of his favorite techniques, and one that he's uh, particularly associated with. Mr. Dincenzo, yes. Sir. you want to introduce everybody?
1: Hey, how's everybody doing today? Uh, we are going to talk about batch sparging, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, you know, like I said, people, people think batch sparging, and they think you. So that's kind of unfortunate and amazing that the technique <laughs> has taken off. Yeah, right. Well, hey, why don't we get started with how did you come across batch sparging? Like, how did you start brewing, and how did that lead into batch sparging?
1: Okay, um, well, it it all came about out of a great desire to brew an alt beer. Um, I had been brewing extract and uh, done, I think, maybe like one partial mash, uh, you know, with the uh, traditional method of sticking the, the pot of grain into the oven to hold the mash temp and straining it out through a strainer and everything, came to the realization that I could probably do all grain in about the same amount of time it was taking me to do a partial mash. At the time, this was back in about, oh, maybe like 99, something like that. Uh, There was the Homebrew Digest that was around back then, a mailing list, and the late great George Fix had started talking about this technique that he had run across called batch sparging, where instead of gradually adding your sparge water, as was common around then, you pretty much put it all in at once and then ran it off all at once. Uh, that appealed to the pragmatist in me. And at the same time, I was on the Usenet news group called Wreck Brewing, and there was a guy there named Bob Regent. And by the way, if any of you guys know Bob Regent from the San Francisco Bay Area, I sure as heck would like to get in contact with him. Because uh, Bob was the guy who really got me into it. Uh, He was uh, a guy who I had identified as somebody who seemed to know what he was talking about. And one of the things he talked about was how he had just switched from his uh, large three-kettle keg uh, uh, fly spurge system to a system of uh, doing a batch sparge in a cooler and that he was never going back. And I kind of thought, wow, if somebody like Bob is so sold, maybe this is something I should look at more closely.
0: Well, and to clarify for people, just because we haven't defined any terms, Fly sparging is the traditional way that we all think of sparging, you know, which is what breweries do. It's what I was taught when I first started to brew, and that's basically, you know, okay, start slowly, you know, you vorle off your mash, you get your runoff clear, and then you start draining that into the kettle, and as you're draining that into your boil kettle, you top up with sparge water to try and maintain an even flow of in and out. Yeah, that's that is correct. So in practice and in theory, the idea is by doing that, you're maintaining you know, proper hydration across the whole mash bed and ensuring even washing and rinsing of the grains. But it requires math and careful balance and a lot of fiddling with valves in order to make sure that you're going in and out at the same time and not putting too much water in.
1: Yeah, and it does have some potential drawbacks, too, uh, because grain has a natural ability to buffer the pH and keep it in the right range. When you fly sparge, it's easily possible to dilute that buffering power enough that your pH will start rising throughout the sparge uh, to the point where you might get tannin extraction. There are ways of dealing with that. It's easier if you don't have to deal with it. So anyway, after reading these things from uh, uh, George Fix and Bob Regent, uh, my mind was really going in that direction. And then I ran across a paper that uh, Ken Schwartz uh, from Texas presented at the 1998 National Homebrew Conference up in Portland. And it was all about batch sparging, and he actually had a diagram and instructions for how to set up a cooler for batch sparging uh, using what was called a sure screen, right? This is a little like maybe like four to six inch piece of about uh, three-eighths ID screen that uh, he was advocating. So I uh, ordered one of those. I got myself a little tiny, uh, like, I think it was like a six gallon cooler, looked a little bit like R2D2. Installed the sure screen with a mini keg bung and a little cheapo nylon valve and went to town brewing my first batch of alt beer and using Munich malt, which I'd never been able to use before. The process was considerably simpler and less messy than when I had done the uh, the oven mash and, and trying to louder through a strainer and all that. I was still brewing in my kitchen at the time. And the beer turned out amazingly well. Uh, it was just one of those things that's like, whoa, if it's going to work this well, I'm hooked. This is what I'm doing. So I brewed a few more small batches because of the size of the cooler. I could only do two and a half gallons at a time. Then I went out and grabbed myself a 48 quart Rubbermaid cooler. Um, for the, the laddering system in that, I started off with the sure screen, but then somebody on the homebrew digest said, you know I'll bet you could even do that with one of those like stainless steel braids that's on the outside of a water supply line, and I said to myself,
0: "Why, sure you could?" So, I, uh, wait, I, I, one on. of those, hold on, yes, water supply line for what?
1: Oh, well, I mean, you can use them for a toilet. Although, you know, it, it, I enjoy saying that I use a toilet hose in my mash tun and watching people's faces, but, uh, you know, that's more hyperbole than anything. So, anyway, <laughs> so I, I set up this 48 quart Rubbermaid cooler. With the uh, hose braid in it and uh, a cheapo nylon valve, as a matter of fact, you can see the whole thing at dennybrew.com, and I'm sure we'll put up a link for that. that was what you'll see in those pictures is that original cooler that I've made. I have now brewed five hundred and eleven batches of beer, and I would bet that in excess of four hundred and fifty of them have been made in that cooler, and I still use the same cooler with the same hose braid in it to this day.
0: I wonder have you done a uh Part cost per batch calculation? <laughs> are we now down into micro pennies?
1: Uh, we're we're down into fractions of a cent at this point. You know, I think that the cooler was about twenty five bucks or so, and I have maybe uh, oh, maybe about twelve dollars worth of other parts into it between the hose braid, the valve, and uh, the uh, mini keg bung and the vinyl tubing. So it's a, it's a very inexpensive system. It works well, and that's why I call it cheap and easy.
0: Well, hey, look, you know, we always knew that you're cheap, and now we know that you're easy. That must make you very popular some weekends.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if only I was young and good looking, uh, that would be useful for me. But at this point, it is strictly all about the mash tun.
0: Just going back for a second and thinking about badge sparging, I know that we see it nowadays with, you know, like when people introduce new techniques and, and new ways of doing things, like, say, uh, brewing a bag a couple of years ago, that there's a lot of sort of pushback. Do you remember when this was uh, introduced? Because I mean, nowadays batch sparging seems like old hand, right? You know, so many people do it. Do you remember back then? Was there any sort of pushback from people <laughs> grumbling about this isn't the right way to brew beer? Oh, of
1: course, of course. You know, and it goes back to everybody thinks that their way is the only right way to brew beer. But yeah, there was there was huge pushback. One thing I remember in particular was a guy who. Uh, Said to his homebrew store owner that he was going to be batch sparging, and the homebrew store owner said, Oh, you can't do that. You'll make dirty beer. It's like, Dirty beer? What the heck? You know, and uh, the other big, the other big wrap that uh, batch sparging took initially was that uh, there was an efficiency loss from batch sparging, and so you should uh, fly sparge because you would get much better efficiency. Now, number one, I don't know anybody who brews just to see how high an efficiency they can get. That you know, that's kind of a uh, measuring the male genital kind of uh, issue that uh, that I just don't understand whatsoever. Uh, but the other thing that I discovered is that you really don't take an efficiency hit in batch sparging um, when. I uh, discovered Ken Schwartz's uh, paper and instructions and stuff. I emailed him, and he was developing a series of equations then to help you figure water amounts for batch sparging, and and what he called was a grain scale-up factor, which supposedly was to account for the lower efficiency of batch sparging. So I would put recipes in and use his grain scale-up factor, and I was always overshooting my original gravity. So I eventually came to the realization that you know forget the grain scale up factor just figure your efficiency for what you're really getting and these days batch sparging I average someplace between 83 and 85% uh, brew house efficiency so I'm I'm real happy with it and uh, that's uh, pretty much as good as you would get with fly sparging. And uh, even if it's not quite as good, the uh, ease and the time saving more than makes up for it.
0: Let's, I mean, we've talked a lot about batch sparging, but we haven't actually gone through the steps. Let's start with the crush. Uh, Is there anything special about the Crush for doing batch sparging as opposed to doing fly sparging?
1: There is no requirement for the Crush for batch sparging as opposed to fly sparging. It's going to depend pretty much on how your laddering system works and, and how good it is. I find with the particular hose braid that I use that I can crush very, very fine and uh, not get astringency because I control my pH and get really, really good efficiency. If your laddering system is not like mine, you may not be able to crush as fine. What I always tell people is crush till you're scared. And, you know, some people get scared more easily than others. Basically, my technique was to keep cranking the gap on my mill tighter and tighter and tighter until I started having trouble with one of the runoffs. I opened it back up just a hair, and that's where it's been for the last 15 or 16 years.
0: All I can think is is somebody saying, Mommy, mommy, I'm scared of my grain.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, people people seem to be extremely scared of having a stuck runoff. And uh, let me tell you, it's... <laughs> It's no big deal. You just deal with it and move on. And it's uh, it's worth it to experiment uh, with your crush to, uh, to take the chance of having a stuck runoff. Like I said, with my loudering system, I have never had one stick in all those batches that I've done. No matter if it's wheat, I've gone as high as 60% rye. It wasn't a good beer, but the runoff didn't stick. That's that's it. There's really there's really no requirement for the crush. The tighter you crush, the finer you crush, the more efficiency you will likely get. Just be aware that uh, you you need to make sure that your water chemistry is right also.
0: Now, do you think the fine crush help you account for, you know, having equal efficiency to fly sparge or do you think that that's just coincidence? I, I think it's
1: definitely a factor uh, I, I as far as I can tell the finer you crush the higher your efficiency is going to be so you know that that might be the the reason behind it the other thing I should make uh, a, a little bit of a note of here is the um, the braid itself I see a lot of things where people have trouble with the braid collapsing for them they do things like put a piece of coiled copper wire inside to hold it open with my braid I don't need to do any of that stuff and it's never collapsed We'll put a link to the particular braid I use. It's uh, a lasco brand, A-L-S-C-O. And uh, I'll, I'll put the part number up on the website so you can see that because you just don't have to mess with it. Like I said, I have used this braid for an excess of 450 batches. It has not crushed. It has not collapsed. There's nothing being done
0: to it. As a word of warning to uh, brewers out there who are building new tons, I know that when you first started to build your tons, you could find stainless steel water hoses fairly easily. And nowadays, when you go into the hardware store, where it'd be very easy to find these things, you have to be careful because a lot of those water supply hoses are no longer stainless steel braided. They're actually plastic braided, but the plastic is you know, made to look like it's stainless steel.
1: Right. Uh, I do know that these Lasco hose braids are sold on Amazon because I've seen them there and sent people there to get them. I think they're like in the 7 to $12 area, so they're really not very expensive. So I would say if you're building a mash tun, get this braid and you will be happy. Now, one thing I talked about was helping Ken Schwartz develop his spreadsheets for water amounts and stuff like that. And that's always a a big thing uh, for batch sparging because the the basic process is that when you get done mashing you completely drain the mash tun you add all your sparge water at once and then you completely drain that so you need to calculate it reasonably closely in the beginning unlike fly sparging where you just kind of keep going until you uh, have your boil volume So Ken developed these spreadsheets to try and help you determine water amounts. Uh, I know that Beersmith has similar things, and people are always asking me about it. But truthfully, it is way, way easier than that. Uh, this whole thing goes back to Ken's paper stating that uh, you get the best efficiency if you have two runoffs of equal volume. While that may be theoretically true, I have found that if your runoff volumes are, say, within a gallon, gallon and a half of each other, you're going to be fine, and it just doesn't matter that much. So my technique now, my process is to use whatever ratio of water to grain that I want to for my mash. And I generally use about a quart and two thirds to a quart and three quarters of water for every pound of grain. Do your mash. Run that off into your kettle. Measure how much you have in your kettle. I have a stick with, you know, marks put on it so I can tell what's there. So, after you measure how much you have in your kettle from the mash, subtract that from the amount that you want to boil, and the answer that you get is how much sparge water to use. Because at that point, grain absorption has happened, the grain is saturated, whatever water goes in is the same amount of water that will come out. So, if you collected, say, four and a half gallons from your mash, and you wanted a seven gallon boil volume, then you you would simply sparge with two and a half gallons. The other thing I do with my sparge water that pretty much flies in the face of convention is that I heat it up to about 185-190 degrees. You know you always hear heat your sparge water to 170 but in truth what you want is for the grain bed itself to be in the neighborhood of 170. Uh, so by using hotter water that happens. It helps me make sure that I get every last little bit of conversion from the grain. I use uh, Kai Troister's conversion efficiency chart to check. And I'm generally in the in the mid to high 90s on my conversion efficiency. So I think that that process must be working pretty well.
0: Just to go back to an earlier point, because you're doing your initial strike with whatever an appropriate volume ra- for your ratio desired ratio right. is you uh, when you're looking at trying to do your mash temperatures you're just following the standard charts that everybody has
1: yeah yeah i uh, i use promash still i started using it when i started brewing and i haven't found uh, Anything it can't do, so I don't need to change. So I got the, uh, the thermal mass of my mash tun dialed in pretty well a long time ago. So I just I use the uh, mash temperature calculator in ProMash, put in the uh, amount of grain I have, the ambient temperature of the grain, and uh, then let it tell me my uh, my strike temperature based on the on those two things and the thermal mass of my cooler.
0: And then the second edition is always in the 180-190 area. No need to worry about it. No,
1: because, you know, I would say that probably about 80% of my beers get mashed at 153. So I know, Mm. you know, I have a really good idea about how much it's going to take. And quite frankly, it just does not make that much difference. You're going to hear people debating these fine points uh, and believe me, I have found that there's a lot of this stuff that just doesn't matter.
0: I know that you you said mash and drain. I'm assuming on the initial runoff, there's a Vorloff step.
1: Yeah, there is. And again, one of the great things about this Lasko braid that I use is that the mesh on it really, really holds back particles. Uh, I think worst case, I have to Vorloff two quarts and Generally, it's like maybe only a quart before I get clear wort, and you know, again, I hear people vorloffing their entire mash volume, you know, twice, and it takes them two hours to do it, and I, I have to wonder what they're doing that uh, that I'm doing differently.
0: They haven't made the proper sacrifices to the beer god. Well, that
1: that that could be it. They may not do the mash dance like I do.
0: Uh, no, nobody does the uh, the mash watusi just like Denny. <laughs> That's it. And then on the sparge step, I know this is a, another point of contention that uh, some people go, well, okay, after you, after you add your sparge water, you have to stir the mash and then do another Vorloff. I didn't hear you say that. Uh, is that to say then that you basically dump in your sparge water and then immediately run it out? No,
1: no, I do. I I stir the sparge water in very well. I stir it thoroughly, but not violently i've heard people say oh you need to stir in that sparge water like it owes you money no no you don't (laughs) you know i don't worry a lot about how much oxygen i'm getting in my mash but at the same time i try not to uh, let it get excessive so anytime i'm adding water or stirring i try and do it gently but you know not be ridiculous about it you know you just you just do the best you can
0: so, and after that, you know you get into your your boil kettle, and everything else is the same and at that point in time, you're just m- making beer now. Are there any times when you think batch sparging doesn't work
1: uh, i you know i can't I can't think of any situation I've ever gotten into where batch sparging did not work, and fly sparging would work better, you know. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you're doing no sparge, that's a whole different animal. And that's generally what I do when I do brew in a bag. I can't think of any particular style of beer or situation where batch sparging wouldn't work as well as any other method.
0: Anything funny happen if you have to do, say, multi-step infusions? Because you just, obviously, I think both of our processes largely rotate around single infusion mashes as do most home brewers. So uh, any change ups that you have to make for multi step or is it just really account for the water volume and go Yeah
1: that's that's pretty much it man my particular method for doing step mashes is to use boiling water uh, I found it's at least for me it's difficult to calculate an exact water temperature when you're using a cooler because coolers are meant to resist temperature change mm-hmm. when I'm doing a step mash I just kind of add boiling water stir it in as I check the temperature and when I get to the temperature of my step, that's enough boiling water.
0: So we have advantages over fly sparging. Any cons that you have to worry about, Mr. Con? <laughs>
1: uh I mean, again, the only thing I can really see that could be a particular issue is getting a stuck runoff. And with the right loudering system and the right crush, which is not hard to dial in, that should not really be a- an issue.
0: Well, and then there's also always the thing of, you know, if you're ever really worried about it, rice holes are your friend.
1: Yeah, that's true. You know, I have, I, I keep a bag out in the brewery. Uh, I don't know if it's ever been opened, and it's been there for ten years or more. Oh boy,
0: there was. A- I know, for instance, on the Falcons Club system, you know, our brewery Mark II, right, that we have that is fifty plus gallons. It has a braid in the bottom that's built out of the shielding for military comm cables. Right, I've seen that. Pretty hefty braid. Yeah, it's the exact same one I have. The only thing that we have to be careful of is we do actually put rice holes in ours because at that point in time, even with this sturdy braid, you're talking about enough weight of malt on top of it, you know, that you're dealing for like fifty gallons. When I did the Falcon's Claws batch earlier this year, yeah, you know, that was a hundred and forty pounds of grain on top of the braid, right? And and just that sheer kind of column, you know, It really does work better when you have the rice holes in there.
1: One one of my mash tuns is a one hundred and fifty two quart cooler that uh, I use to make a ten gallon batch of barley wine with a couple friends uh, every once in a while. And we 've had up to seventy seventy five pounds of grain in there, and it didn 't hurt the braid whatsoever so uh, i don 't know if if i 'm talking one hundred and forty pounds of grain i don 't know if I want to take the uh, risk of maybe having to dig through that if something goes wrong
0: yeah I mean sometimes it 's just a matter of you know, you know rice holes don 't affect the beer that much and better than having to yeah dig around for the braid yeah
1: yeah it, it 's a cheap uh, a cheap insurance.
0: But I would also stress that you have to be careful about how your braid is attached and how it lays in the cooler, because I know that there have been some people who, if they have really long braids that are very floaty, that they'll have problems draining from uh, some parts of the mash tun, or even worse, damaging the braid by you know sort of being aggressively stirring. That that brings up a good point. A longer
1: braid gains you nothing. It doesn't drain better. It doesn't increase your efficiency. Think about it. The braid is porous. Wort is flowing through it at all points along it. Basically, all you really need to do is have a filter at the outlet. And I have experimented with braids from two inches to two feet long and they all work exactly the same. So don't get into the trap of thinking that a longer braid is going to be better. It's, If anything, it's going to make your life more difficult.
0: So now naturally, of course, we can't talk about pros and cons of batch sparging versus fly sparging without also kind of looking at the newer technique that a lot of people have adopted with brew-in-the-bag. So we're not going to dive deep into that now uh, about how you do brew-in-the-bag, but what do you think are... The pros and the cons of batch sparging versus brew in a bag?
1: I th- I think that, I mean, for me, I like my batch sparging in my cooler. Uh, I do occasionally do some smaller batches using brew in a bag in my kitchen, and I think mm-hmm. that it's a very viable method for that. I know there are a lot of people who do 5, 10, and 15 gallon batches uh, as a brew in the bag, and they have a hoist hooked up to pick up the bag and do all that kind of stuff. To me it's like if I'm going to do that much work, then I might as well just use a mash tun. And to, to me when you have to have a hoist to lift the bag and do all this other stuff, the ease of brewing the bag is lost and to me that's one of the real beauties of it. Now, I I know that there are people out there who are going to disagree with me and that's fine. Uh, everybody gets to brew however they like. That's why it's called home brewing. But that's that's the way I look at it.
0: Well, and then there's also now the sort of hybrid technique that you're seeing where people are using mash bags where they have a bag designed to fit a cooler. And instead of having a braid, they mash inside the bag, inside the cooler, and then drain out through the bottom of the mash done just like you do in bash sparging.
1: Right, and just basically use the bag for their laddering system. I, ha- I haven't tried that. Uh, I have a bag uh, for my cooler so that I can try that. I can't see why it would work any better than my braid. And I say that because I've never found anything wrong with the braid. But until I have a, a chance to actually try it, uh, I'm not going to make a definitive statement.
0: Before we leave this topic, any other comments that you have about batch sparging? Anything else that people should know?
1: Oh, I'll probably remember it after we're done. But uh, <laughs> No, not really. I would, you know, according to a survey done by Brulosophy, Batch sparging is now the most popular way of brewing all grains. So there's going to be a lot more people out there doing it than there were when I first started. So I have a lot less to explain. But if you aren't batch sparging already and you have any interest in it at all, give it a chance. Give it a try. See what happens for you. Based on my experience, it won't be worse than what you're doing now.
0: Well, and what it seems like if both the brew uh, surveys are to be believed the surveys that we've done in the past and the surveys that we have access to via the HA, the biggest segment right now for all grain is or the biggest growing segment for all grain is brew in a bag right and so what it feels like to me is whereas before yeah, people were going from extract to batch sparge and then possibly to fly sparging if they're traditionalist type of people now what we're seeing is people going from extract to brew in a bag with people possibly moving up to batch sparging as an increased level of flexibility, and I don't know if anybody's still moving up to fly sparging except for those who have, you know, the hopes of being a commercial brewer at some point in time.
1: Yeah, right. You know, one of the reasons I never got into fly sparging is because I prefer to brew like I cook, which is very hands-on. I don't need a big automated shiny system, you know, I don't need to pretend to be a commercial brewery. That's me. I'm not dissing anybody else if that's what you like, because everybody has different reasons for brewing. But yeah, it's, you know, it's easy. It's. It makes you feel like you're involved in your beer. You know, one other thing is that when you're fly sparging, you can take an hour or more to do a sparge because you need to kind of do it slowly. Whereas batch sparging from assuming that I want, say, seven and a half gallons of wort in my kettle to end up with a five and a half gallon batch, from the time I start running off my mash, then if that runs off, I add my sparge water, I stir it in, I Vorloff again, I run off the sparge, and that whole thing takes me a total of 15 minutes. So it saves a bunch of time.
0: Which, actually, you know, that's something that we forgot to to mention earlier. Is I know there are some different schools on this, but you are of the school of once you open the valve, open the valve.
1: I, I start off with the valve just barely cracked as I'm doing my Vorloff because what I don't want to do is start
0: off. Well, you don't want to set the bed. Exactly.
1: I, I don't want to suck all that grain down and set the mash hard as a rock. So I start off with the valve just barely cracked during the Vorloff. When, you know, once I see the wort is running clear, I take the hose from the output of the cooler, move that over to the kettle, pour the portion that's in my pitcher for the Vorloff back over the top, and at that point, then I'll go ahead and open up the valve full
0: on. Even when I do batch sparging, I still, I still to this day only run the valve at half, uh, half speed because of tr- residual fly sparging. You know <laughs> mechanisms in my head.
1: I was gonna say that whenever I start thinking like that, my curiosity gets to me, and it's like. What's going to happen if I do this? And so that's that's how I came to full speed.
0: Now before we leave uh, the show altogether, do you have that alt recipe still? I know you have it in a long somewhere. Uh, right?
1: Yeah, I still have that someplace. I'll uh, I'll dig it up and we'll put it on the website for for Denny's original
0: alt beer. And Denny's original old alt that's ale. Right. All right, so yeah, you'll be able to find that on the website as part of the show notes, along with a couple of other things that Denny linked to, like Kai's conversion calculator, and a couple of other things just kind of help you get through the day when you're batch sparging. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope you enjoyed this journey to, well... How you become a batch sparger and why Denny Kahn gets all the credit for something he didn't invent. That's
1: right, man. I, I swear I did not invent it.
0: <laughs> well, hey, remember if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, recipes, whatever that you want us to cover, you can drop us a line at podcast at com. You can reach us individually at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Facebook, on Reddit. You can find Denny on just about any homebrewing forum that exists out there in the universe, because the man is permanently attached to a keyboard. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And hey, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes. You can click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, ExperimentalBrew.com, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. Yay, dogs! Yes, We love the dogs. Save the dogs. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.